Mark chapter 6, as today we're going to talk about faith and how important it is, you know, by faith we're saved, uh, by faith uh, we grow as Christians, and by faith God does miracles. You know, I know uh, if I could talk to every single person here, I'm sure there's something going on in your life where you could use a miracle. You know, maybe you need a miracle in your marriage, or you need a miracle for your children or grandchildren. Maybe you need a, a miracle in your body, or something's going on at, at work, or financially, or in ministry. You know, you're looking for that breakthrough, and you find yourself not able to really experience that. And really, what you need is for God to step in and do a miracle. Well, we're going to see today that it requires faith on our part. But as we learn, it's just so cool to see um, that when we exercise faith, that God will do wonders, man. But it's not easy sometimes. I remember reading a story, it's a familiar story about a man who was walking along a narrow path and suddenly he slipped over the edge. And as he skidded down the mountain, he thought he was going to die. So in desperation, man, he was able to grab hold of a branch that was growing from the side of the cliff. You know, so there he is holding on the side of the cliff. He knows he can't stay there forever, right? And so he calls out for help. Help, help. Is there anyone up there, right? And finally, he heard a voice, responded to him, said, yes, I'm here. And so the man rejoiced. He was happy to hear someone was there. And he said, who are you? And then the voice responded, it's me, the Lord. <laughs> and, and so the man's all, yes, praise God, it's God, you know, and so... You know, the, the Lord said, do you trust me? And the man said, of course, certainly, God, I, I trust you. And so, so God said, let go. And the man said, what? And God said, let go. And so the man paused for a moment, thought about it, and he said, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> right? I mean, because the bottom line is, the truth is, a lot of times we don't have faith and we sometimes need to let go of things that God calls us to let go of. Uh, that unhealthy relationship you're, where you're unequally yoked, you're a Christian, they're not. God says, let go of it because I love you. Um, that religion, a lot of times people don't want to let go of their Catholicism or religion and God says, I want you to let go of it because I got a relationship for you, right? I mean, it takes faith to let go of the money and start giving to God the way that you should. It takes faith to let go of the children you're trying to control and change through your religious manipulation. And God says, let them go. Give them to me. Give me the ministry and I'll do something that will blow your mind, right? I mean, some of us here, I know for sure you're hurting. Some are hanging like that guy on the edge of the cliff, emotionally and spiritually. Here's the thing, man. My prayer is that today God would stir us up uh, with faith that he would work within us in such a way that he would comfort your hurting hearts and rescue your souls that are dying inside. And so today we're going to see three things. Number one, a reason for faith. Number two, excuses for lack of faith. And then number three, the results of both. And so Mark 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? 
The first thing we see here is reasons for faith. You know, we read there in verse 1 that, that Jesus came to his own country, and that's his hometown of Nazareth. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And so he comes to his town. Next Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, and he starts teaching there in front of the people. When the people heard him teach, they were totally blown away. I mean, they, they said right there, it says, and he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. You know, and we've talked a little bit about this, you guys. Imagine how awesome of a teacher Jesus must have been. You know, I can't even begin to imagine how, how his teachings were. I, I mean, he's not just a great expositor of the Bible or teacher of the Bible or preacher of the Bible. He's the author of the Bible, right? I mean, he's not just a gifted communicator. He's the inventor of communication and language. He's God. He must have had all the right illustrations, applications. He knew every single situation of every single person that was seated within the sanctuary of that synagogue that Sabbath day. So imagine that, all under the influence of the Holy Spirit, perfect truth spoken with perfect love. And you, you know, you get a little bit of that, and man, you, it just makes perfect sense why they were astonished in the synagogue on that Sabbath day, right? And we see that frequently throughout the scriptures. For example, Mark 1.22, it says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I mean, when he taught, it was just truth, boom, and it hit him hard, Right? Mark eleven eighteen. it says, The scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And then after the Sermon on the Mount, you guys remember some of the greatest words ever spoken in Matthew 5 through 7? The Bible says in verse 28 of Matthew 7, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these things, that the people were astonished at his teaching. Even his enemies knew how good of a teacher he was. There was one time in John 7, verse 32, where the religious leaders, they sent some officers, some Jewish officers, to go and arrest him. But they came back and they didn't have him. And so we read in John 7, 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. I mean, no one had ever spoken like Jesus, and no one has ever spoken like Jesus. He has spoken the greatest words ever spoken. And what we find, you guys, is it's, it's reasons to believe. I mean, you read this Bible right here, the Word of God. You read the prophecies there. You read the truths there. You read the love letter there. And there is no word like God's word. And when you take it in, you are blown away. You are astonished. There is reason to believe. You see, the people heard his word and they were impressed beyond measure. They had also heard about his works and that blew them away as well. Again, look at verse 6. It says, uh, many hearing him were astonished and saying, where did this man get these things and what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? 
And so, you know, when you look at the story, what you find is more than likely the works that were done were not done there in Nazareth, but the report of Jesus' miracles had spread far and wide. You know, the blind see, the lame, they walk, you know, the deaf hear, the mute speak. The ones who are you know, possessed by demons, the demons are taken care of and cast out with authority. Jesus feeds the thousands. He walks on the sea. He stills the storms. All the report went before him. And so when the people heard his word and they heard about his works, the Bible says that they were absolutely astonished. The Greek word, it means to strike a blow. And what we find is that the people were struck with amazement at the words and works of Jesus Christ. And you guys, for us here today, you know, we need to know that there is no one like Jesus. And we have a faith that is anchored in fact, that we have a reason to believe what we believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of our lives because no one has ever spoken like him and no one has ever worked like him. He's the greatest messenger who has done the greatest miracles, even himself dying on a cross for our sins and then rising from the dead. You know, that's what brought Nicodemus to Jesus, the miracles that he had done, Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I mean, here's Nicodemus, a Jewish teacher of the day, and he saw it with the signs of Christ. And the signs are reasons to believe. You know, some of us have seen it in other lives. Some of you here, you've experienced it. You are a miracle. You are a miracle. Kind of like that guy in John chapter 9 in verse 32. You know, when he was trying to talk to the religious leaders, he was the guy that was blind, but Jesus had healed him from his blindness. And so he spoke to the religious leaders, and he said, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so the signs were, you know, they were reasons to believe. Even Jesus himself said that they were reasonable reasons to believe. In John 5, 36, he says, The works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And, you know, for us here today, I mean, here we are, uh, you know, whatever, a couple of thousand years later, and we look back in history, we study the history of the world, we study the people, the figures of ancient history, and what we find that there's, there's no one that even begins to compare to Jesus Christ. He's the most influential figure who has ever walked the face of the earth. You know, I mean, the words that he spoke, the works that he did, dying and rising from the dead, there's no one like Christ. And so for those of us looking at Jesus, listening to Jesus, seeing these things, man, I'll tell you what, we have reason to believe. We have reasons to be saved and we give our life to Christ and we have reasons to be sanctified and we continue to believe in him and you watch what God will do in your life and through your life when you believe. He even said this, you will do greater works. And so, you know, here he is in Nazareth, and they're taking all this in. 
You know, they see the reasons to believe, and so you would figure they become followers of Christ, right? Wrong. Look what we read. It says in verse 3, as all this takes place and, and they're astonished, they say in verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. You see, and it's the same today, in spite of the reasons for faith, you're always going to find those people who have excuses for lack of faith, right? I mean, here we see they were impressed beyond measure by his words and works, but rather than letting his messages and miracles, you know, come out to what they mean, that he was the Messiah, you know, they suppressed the evidence and doubted him. They were even offended at him, the Bible says, simply because they knew him growing up. And what we find is that them, like many people today, they find excuses. They make excuses not to believe. You know, uh, an excuse can be defined as a reason stuffed with a lie, right? And that's what they were doing. They were believing their own lies. You know, how can he be the Christ? I mean, he's just a carpenter, right? He's a blue-collar worker. How in the world can carpenter be the Christ? I mean, how can he be the son of God? He's the son of Mary. That's how they saw him, right? And that in and of itself would be a derogatory statement because in that culture of that day, you would never refer to someone as a son of his mom. You would always refer to him as a son of his father, but it was meant to put him down. Not only that, uh, teachers tell us that they were probably alluding to the terrible suspicion that they didn't know who Jesus' father was. Remember when Jesus was born, Mary was impregnated, and she claimed that it was a virgin birth. They didn't believe it. They didn't buy it. They thought she had sex before marriage, that Joseph wasn't the father. They said, we don't even know who his father is. He's the son of Mary. And in spite of the overwhelming evidence, they just came up with excuse after excuse. They said, we know his brothers and sisters, and they named him by name, and they're here among us. And, you know, because his siblings didn't believe, more than likely they weren't the best witnesses. And so, at the end of the day, what ended up happening? It says there in verse 3 that they were offended at him. And I wonder why they were offended. Uh, were they offended because he was teaching them? And they said, hey, you shouldn't be teaching us. Were they offended at what he said? You know, a lot of times pastors or preachers or teachers that come from God will uh, deliver a message of correction. And a lot of times people don't like to be corrected. Um, maybe he was just telling them, hey, the way to heaven is through me. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, he loved them, wanted them to go to heaven, sharing them with them the way. But, you know, for whatever reason, they were offended at him. You know, we, we know, it's interesting, um, they had done the same thing a year earlier. If you read Luke 4, 16 through 30, Jesus had gone into the synagogue he had quoted from the book of Isaiah, 
And he sat down and he said, today this uh, prophecy is fulfilled in your sight. And they began to say the same thing. They pushed him out of the synagogue and they wanted to push him over the cliff and kill him. I went to Israel. I saw exactly where they were going to push him over. They intended to take him down. But now the Lord, what does he do? He gives him a second chance. You know, I don't know where you guys come from. I, I know a lot of you here are believers in the Lord. But maybe you're here for the first time, the second time. Maybe God's been, you know, tugging at your heart, inviting you to make a full commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, I want to encourage you to know that that's the God that we serve, that, that he will pursue you, that he loves you, that he'll chase after you in order to bring you into right relationship with him. That's what he did in Nazareth, and he goes again, and he does it again. But I also want to preface that by saying that he never went back to Nazareth again, that this was the last time our Lord ministered there. You know, none of us knows when's the last time that opportunity has been given to us. You know, here we see the Lord, man, going to Nazareth, offering them himself, offering them love and life, and unfortunately, they were offended at him. You know, he quotes uh, uh, like a parable or, you know, a little saying that was popular in the culture of the day. There in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. You know, he had said the same thing in John 4, verse 44. Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And, and you wonder why. Why is that? Well, there's a saying, it goes like this. It says, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, we, we know you. We, we know your family. You know, we've watched you grow up. You were a good kid when you were little. I don't remember having any problems with you. But in all reality, you weren't like this great leader. You weren't this flamboyant guy. I mean, they looked at him from that perspective, saying he wasn't really anything special, didn't stand out. He said you were, you were just a carpenter. When your dad died, you took over the business. We did business with you. Uh, you did good, honest work, but to claim that you, the carpenter, are the Christ? And what did they do? They found reasons not to believe. And, you know, I know for us here, it might be different. You know, you might be here and you say, well, the reason I don't believe in God is because I, my dad died when I was just a little kid. You know, or you might be here and you, the reason I don't believe in God is because I, I can't see him. You know, or the reason I believe in God, and you fill in the blank, and really at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of questions. But let me tell you, none of them hold water. You know, I know we live in a fallen world, and there are a lot of things that we don't understand. I don't understand why my dad wasn't there for me growing up. I don't understand why he was addicted to drugs. I don't understand why my mom was in a terrible car accident when I was just a little boy. I don't understand a lot of things. But you ever heard that saying? It says, whenever you come to something you don't understand, you fall back on what you do understand. And what we do understand is that there is a God, he's a creator, he's a maker, and he loves us. And he sent his son Jesus to die for us, and he proved who he was by speaking the greatest words ever spoken and doing the greatest works ever done. And what God is saying is, Believe in me. 
Trust in me. I want to work in a great way, and I want to use your life. You know, for these guys right here, it was, it was this, uh, the, the weakness of familiarity. You know, and that can happen to us in so many ways. I mean, I don't know. I, I think of a rose. I, I know this is probably not a common example, but, you know, the first time you ever saw a rose and you looked at it and you said how beautiful that is, and then maybe you smelled it and you said how beautiful that smells, you know? It was an experience that perhaps was special. And, you know, and then you do it again the next day and maybe the next week and maybe the next month. But in all reality now, how long has it been since you've stopped to smell the roses? In one sense, you know, you don't do it anymore. Why? Because it's now common day. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, I remember when I first started driving, to be honest with you, I liked it. I really enjoyed it. Did you guys like driving when you first started? I remember I'd tell my theme Mary, hey, I'll go to the store. Yeah, you know, I'll go. And I used to like driving. Now it's like, no way. My daughter wants to go. I'm not today, sweetheart, you know. My kids are getting older. One thing that's kind of cool is I can let them drive. <laughs> and I can sit in the driver's seat, you know. I mean, this is the way it is because now we're, we're used to it. I mean, you can tell the difference between people on an airplane, first-timers, those who do it every day, Right? The first-timers are bouncing on their seats, and they're so excited, and when it takes off, they're looking out the window, and they're, you know, the, the ones that have been doing it forever are bored, as bored can be, right? Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, it can happen to us as Christians in our, in our Bible reading, in our prayer time, in our time as a congregation with God. You know, we take it for granted now. He's always there for us. And what ends up happening is familiarity breeds contempt. You know, that principle, in one sense, was, was, was Jesus' issue right here. As they saw him and they didn't think he was anything special, it wasn't necessarily because at one time they saw him as great and now they don't. For them, it was just that, you know, well, we know him, right? I mean, it would be like some famous actor. I, I don't know. Do any of you guys have any famous actor like your trip out on? Like, whoa, man. You know, I remember one time we were at the airport. We saw Lionel Richie, man. And we're like, oh, wow, Lionel Richie. Can you sing us a song, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, but I'm sure that, you know, and you get starstruck or whatever. But, you know, I'm sure his brothers or sisters or, you know, family, they're like, hey, no, he's nothing special. Why? Because they know him. That's kind of the, the way that this all worked out for Christ. You know, they knew him, and therefore for them, that was their excuse. You know, maybe you've heard of that poet. His name is Thomas Campbell. He was an incredibly gifted poet. But his father uh, didn't know poetry, and his father didn't know his son. And uh, when Thomas's first book emerged with his name on it, his dad looked at the book and he said, who would have ever thought that someone like my son could write something that could be published? And, and they say this, that sometimes we are too near people to see their greatness. Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. Oh, I know him. Yeah, but... Maybe we need to look at things a little differently. Even with my kids, and I know we're all got our little things that we could brag on, but man, 
You know, sometimes my son, he'll play the piano, and uh, I don't even, you know, notice. And then someone else will hear him playing, and they'll be like, what, is that Beethoven, or is that a CD? And, and then the Lord reminds me, you know, that can happen, man. You know, we have to really watch our hearts. The worst thing is when it happens in our relationship with God. You know, the, the main point, what I want to bring across to you guys here is that there are reasons to believe and there are excuses not to. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is to, to camp out and to discover and to rejoice in the reasons to believe. Because God will help you with all the other stuff. I mean, he really will. We're going to see, even as we see it here, that they really hold no water, their arguments. And so... What ends up happening is what we find in verse 5 and 6. And so it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I mean, that's Nazareth. That's then. But this can happen now. You know, it's not that Jesus can't do miracles. Let me tell you something. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. It's not that he couldn't do miracles. It's just that he wouldn't do miracles because of their unbelief. In the climate of unbelief, he chose not to exercise his power because one of the great emphasis in Mark's gospel is that his miracles are responses to faith. You know, isn't it kind of ironic the way that they were astonished at Jesus, and he marveled at them. You know, they both marveled, but for different reasons. They were wondering how Jesus could do miracles, and he was wondering why they wouldn't do miracles by faith. And that's exactly how it works. You know, we just have to have faith. We have to believe in order to receive. I mean, we hear the words, we see the works, the proof is there, the evidence is overwhelming, it all makes perfect sense. We just need to make sure that we are a people that don't suppress that, right? I mean, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the love of the Lord are here today, and I'm wondering if there's anyone here who needs a miracle, if there's anyone here who even wants a miracle, and you look at this and you realize, well, there are reasons to believe. I'm going to stop making excuses, and I'm going to lay hold of my Lord. You know, maybe you're here today in all honesty, and I don't know everybody here, but maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You know, I want you to know God loves you. I want you to know he died for you. I want you to know, we want you to know that today you can give your life to Christ. Today you can take a step of faith. Today you can make a decision and you can be saved, forgiven. And when you die, you'll know for sure that you're going to go to heaven. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. You know, uh, don't limit the Lord from doing mighty works on your behalf. Remember what Jesus told Thomas in John 20, verse 27, he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
You know, what if today Jesus wants to do something great on your behalf, mighty works that will blow your mind? Just for a second, I want you guys to think it through. If you could get a miracle today, not that we're talking to a genie or anything, I'm just saying, if you could get a miracle today, what would it be? And what if the only thing that's between you and that miracle is your faith or your unbelief? It's not there. And God is saying, today, I want you to take a step of faith. Today, I want to work in your life. You know, it's not that you have to become a perfect person or Christian because that's not the way it works with God. Oh, do I have to speak in tongues? No, you don't have to speak in tongues. All you got to do is have the faith of a child. All you got to do is have a mustard seed of faith. And Jesus said, you can move mountains. Do you really believe? You know, that's the question that even we as Christians need to ask ourselves. You know, what we find is that the factor or the, the faith is the factor that determines whether or not we're going to experience these miracles. You know, it's interesting in Luke chapter 7 verse 9, you know, there's a story there about a, about a man who had so much faith that uh, Jesus marveled at him. And so here you have a, a situation where Jesus marveled at their lack of faith, and in that story, he marveled at his faith. Which one will you be? Which one will we be? And let me close with three things that I think are important. Three things about faith that are required in order to experience the mighty works. Look again there at verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. And so my hope and prayer, Lord, is that you would do a mighty work here. You know, there's a true story about a little boy in England who was asked by a team of scientists if he could be lowered down the side of a cliff to recover some specimens that they wanted to study. And the scientists, they said, hey, just let us lower you down and you can grab a few of those plants and then we'll pull you back up and we'll give you a lot of money. I guess he was a little boy and he had the right physique, right? And the little boy said, no way, Jose. You ain't going to let me down like that, man. And so they tried again, offered him more money until finally he said, okay, I'll do it on one condition if you let my dad hold the ropes. And so they said, sure. And this is a true story. And so his dad held the ropes, let him down, got the money, everything was good, right? What's the lesson? The lesson is that our faith is in our Father. Never forget that. Your faith is in your Father, not in yourself, in Him. Number one, the faith has to be paternal. Second story about another dad describes a time when his daughter was five years old and she came to him and she asked him to build her a dollhouse. Dad, you know, nodded his head, yes. He promised to build her the dollhouse and then he went back to reading his book, right? And so as he's there reading his book, he hears some, some kind of ruckus in the backyard and he looks out the window and he sees his, sees his little five-year-old girl uh, going back and forth from her bedroom. She's carrying toys. She's carrying dolls. She's carrying dollhouse furniture. She's carrying all these things until there's a pile right there in the backyard, right? And so he goes uh, to his wife, and, and he says, you know, what's up with that? What's going on? And, and she just told him that his daughter, she believes you. She believes you, that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. You said you're going to build her a dollhouse, and so she's getting ready for it. And and so when the dad saw that whole thing go down, 
What do you think the dad did? Yeah, homeboy went to Home Depot like that, man. <laughs> he said, look at the faith of my little girl. See, the same thing is with us, with God. Number one, our faith is paternal. Number two, our faith is scriptural. Our faith is based on the word of God and the promises of God. That's what the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I promise you this, you get into the word, you saturate yourself in the scriptures, you hold on to the promises of God, and then you watch God work in your life, right? Because you believe him. You know, the third story is about a famous tightrope walker who came to Niagara Falls and stretches rope across the crazy currents from Canada to the United States. And so imagine that, he's got this rope, man, and he's walking back and forth on the rope, even running back and forth on the rope. And uh, one time, I guess he did it blindfolded. Next thing you know, he pushes a wheelbarrow across you know, the rope, and he does this over and over again across Niagara Falls. And what he basically does is he proves himself to the people, so much so that when he asked the people if they thought whether or not he could push a person in the wheelbarrow on that rope across Niagara Falls, everybody had seen everything that he did, and they said, yeah, you can do that. We believe you can do that. Everybody said, yeah, we believe. Yeah, we believe. Yeah, we believe. So finally he goes up to the guy in the front. He says, do you believe that I could push a person in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And he said, yeah. And so the guy said, okay, get in. Right? What do you think the guy said? Oh, there he <laughs> And let me tell you something, man. At the end of the day, that is a difference. Today, today I believe with all my heart that God is going to call some of you to get into the wheelbarrow. God's going to call some of you to give your life to Jesus Christ. God's going to call some of you to recommit your life to Jesus Christ because you know that your commitment is not 100%. God doesn't want a two-timer. God wants all of you. And if you're here today and you haven't been giving him all of your heart, then God wants you to get in the wheelbarrow. God wants you to come forward. Some of you here, there's steps of faith and ministry and life or things that he's been tugging on your heart and he's saying, why won't you make it practical? Why won't you get in the wheelbarrow? You know, what do we have to do, you guys? We gotta take steps of faith. You know, number one is that it's paternal. It's our father holding the rope, so don't worry. Number two, it's scriptural. It's all rooted in God's promises. But then number three, it's practical. What does James chapter 2, verse 20 say? Faith without works is dead. You say you believe, but you haven't been living the life, and you don't even really want to. You know, when Jesus was at the synagogue, okay, and he's teaching. People are offended at him. Oh, you know, he's just a carpenter. He says he's the Christ. We know who he is, his siblings. He's just the son of Mary. And so what, what happened? When it was all done and the service is over, you want to know how we know how it all happened? It was probably just like this. Service is done. Everybody goes home. Right? Except for a few people a few people go forward and he lays his hands on them and heals a couple of sick people. In, in one sense, it's like, it's like they weren't even willing to pray. They weren't even really willing to make a step of faith to come to Jesus like he, they did in all the other places. And, and what I want to just close with today is, is that that's what we got to do, you guys. 
You know, I, I, I thank God for his word and, and he teaches us and we learn things, reasons to believe. Make sure you don't make excuses not to. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to make that decision of whether or not we're going to follow Jesus Christ.